Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's a trope which you sometimes find in film or in, in literature, the trope of someone witnessing their own funeral. Something that people kind of imagine what that would be like to see how people react, to see what people are saying at one's funeral. We have a saying That's your funeral. It's your funeral, and that means that it's your suffering. It's your pain. I'm not going to share it. I'm not willing to share it. It's your funeral. But today, in our text, we read of our funeral, and someone is suffering it for us. Even though it's our pain to bear, Jesus is dying and is being buried for us. The Apostle Paul says to the the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is one of the foundational truths of what it means to be a Christian. That when Christ died, I died. When Christ was buried, I was buried with him into death. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So it is key to the fact that we are free from the body of sin, from the corruption of sin from our old natures, it is key to realize that as we read the words of our text, we're reading about our death and our funeral. Now our text begins after this, and John is referring to all the things that led up to the crucifixion and the three hours of darkness during which Christ hung on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth and forsaken by both, despised and rejected by men, forsaken by God. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know what that means? means that all of your lies, your lust and anger and selfishness and greed, unkind words, unfaithfulness, ungodliness, unholiness, all of our shame, every wrong thought, every sinful word, every unholy act, they were all nailing Jesus to that cross. They were all piled upon our Savior and were crushing the very life out of him. And so in our text we see our old self both crucifying Christ and being crucified with him, killing him and being killed with him. Christ is in agony of body and mind and soul 
indescribable agony, unimaginable agony, just the pain of breathing was unbearable. His arms hanging, his body hanging so that his arms dislocated. Some medical experts suggest that his arms could have become up to six inches longer from being pulled out of their sockets and bearing the weight of his body. And for him to breathe in the way he was on that cross, he had to kind of try to pull himself up a little bit by his arms and try to push himself up by those pierced feet. And it was agony to try to grasp a single breath. And there on the cross in agony, our Lord Jesus Christ drinks the cup of the wrath of God. The wrath of God against my sin and your sin. When he has done that, when he has drunk it to the last drop, knowing, verse 28, knowing that all was now finished, all was complete, he said, I thirst. Now that, that word finished in verse 28 is the same word as we have in verse 30 when he says it is finished. And it means that it's absolutely perfect. Nothing's missing. It's all complete. Everything is done. So why would he say I thirst? Because he knows that everything is done. Well, the apostle tells us to fulfill the Scripture. Now, the, the New Testament often speaks about the Scripture being fulfilled. We read it a number of times in our chapter today, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. That's a, a theme in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament that Christ is the fulfillment of all the ancient prophecies, of all the Scriptures of old. But the word fulfill in our text here in verse 28 is different. It's different than all the other uses of the word fulfilled. It's a different Greek word behind this one. And it doesn't just simply mean fulfill, but it means even more strongly finished and perfected and accomplished Jesus to fulfill the scripture, to put that final capstone in the arch, to put that final touch to the finished work of all of the scriptures, he says, I thirst. Because at this moment, every promise of God from Genesis 3 verse 15 onwards Every prophecy, every type, every sacrifice, every sacrament, all of them pointing to Christ, the coming of Christ, all of them are fulfilled. And isn't that what Jesus explains to his disciples after his resurrection when they were surprised to see him? And he opens the scriptures, the, the law and the prophets 
and the Psalms. And he says, look, don't you see that everything in here is written about me and that it has been fulfilled in me? And so Jesus doesn't say, I thirst because he's thirsty, although he is. But he says, I thirst deliberately to fulfill the scriptures. The psalmist speaks in Psalm 69, for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So Christ is fulfilling that prophecy. Psalm 22, that Fifth gospel account of the crucifixion, Psalm 22. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus, on that cross thirsting, is certainly fulfilling the Scriptures. But there's more to it than that. He says, I thirst because he wants a drink. And he wants the drink so that he can gather up his energy one last time so that he can draw himself up in agony to take a final agonized breath so that he can make that final victory shout which we learn in the other gospels is not simply spoken but is spoken with a loud voice. It is finished. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years of promises and prophecies. And finally, they have all come true in Jesus Christ. He has lived a perfect life. He has obeyed perfectly. He has been a perfect son he has been a perfect and sinless man. He has done his duty. He has fulfilled his office. And on top of that, he has taken all of our sin and disobedience upon himself. And he's paid for that. And he has ransomed his people. He has atoned for our sin. And the cup of God's wrath is empty. For all those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, for all those who are united by faith with him in his death and in his resurrection, there is not one drop left in the cup of God's wrath. It is finished. It is done. Sin is dealt with definitively. And so now he can bow his head and give up his spirit. See that in verse 30? No one takes his spirit from him. This is an act, a sovereign act of his will. He gave up his spirit. Did he not say in John chapter 10, verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father, he gives up his spirit when he's ready to do so. Now, where did his spirit go? Well, his spirit went to heaven. 
He said to the repentant, the penitent thief, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so in the death of our Lord, his spirit is separated from his body. His body is to go into the ground. His spirit goes up to the Father. And the other evangelist records those final words, Father, into your hand, I commend my spirit. Now, verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, that means that the next day is the Sabbath day. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews were very concerned that there would not be dead bodies lifted up on those crosses. In, in the, the law of Moses, it was said, it was recorded that if a dead body was not properly buried by sundown, it would defile the land. The Jews have just murdered the Messiah. They've just killed the son of the living God. And they're worried about the fine points of not being unclean on the Sabbath day. That's false religion for you. It majors in the minors. It has the form of religion, but it denies the power, it wouldn't know the power if it stared it in the face. And so they asked that the legs would be broken. And if you break the legs of a crucified person, then they are not able to try to raise themselves up to get that precious breath, and they're going to die more quickly. And it is a miracle that the soldiers, the soldiers are rough men. They're just going to follow orders. It's a miracle that the soldiers do not break the legs of our Lord. We read in one of the other Gospels that the centurion was greatly impressed and said, surely this was the Son of God. And so we can conclude that most likely the Lord used that for him to say to the soldiers, don't break his legs. He was clearly dead anyway. And so instead of his legs being broken, verse 34, he is pierced and blood and water come out, likely a spear thrust into the heart and, and blood comes out and also throughout the suffering of our Lord on the cross, some kind of liquid has gathered around his heart and around his lungs and that comes out as well. And so he's clearly dead. And John says in verse 35, that he is the one who saw it. And, and when he says, I saw it, he uses a, a certain tense in Greek, which means that happened in the past, and it has a continuing effect until the present. It's not just, oh yeah, I saw that once. It's not just a, a single act in the past. No, it is an act of the past which, which has continued import until now. I saw this, and it has stayed with me. I am a witness. And you need to believe that what I saw is true, not because I'm seeing it, but because it is the fulfillment of the Word of God. You are called to believe in this testimony that Jesus died for sinners. This is a call to faith. Beloved, don't just look at this scene. Don't just read about this scene. Don't just know about this, but believe it with all your heart that here hangs Jesus crucified for 
you. Verse 36, he says, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. He is the Passover lamb. And so even though his body is broken and dislocated, his, his bones cannot be broken. He is our Paschal Lamb. He is our Passover. He is the one whose blood covers us in the sight of God so that the avenging angel of the Lord will not destroy us in our sins. And so he is the fulfillment of everything that the Passover Lamb pointed to. That's why his bones could not be broken. And verse 37 refers to another scripture. Zechariah 12, verse 10. And if you quickly look at Zechariah 12, verse 10, if you have an ESV Bible, it's most likely page 799. The scripture says, and this is God speaking, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, says God, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. As the scriptures so often do, the scriptures take a, a text which speaks about and points to God and attributes that same truth and that same scripture to the Lord Jesus Christ as, as if we needed more proof. We don't but it's just one more evidence in Scripture that Jesus is true man and true God. He is pierced for our transgression. Think about that. How has God dealt with our sin? He became one of us so that he could suffer so that he could die, so that he could literally be pierced to the heart because of our transgression, our sin, brother and sister. Our sin literally breaks the heart of God. So here he is, dead, and now, some surprising things happen. Verse 38, Joseph and Nicodemus show up, both rich, prominent leaders of the Jewish people, both of them secret admirers of Christ, but Joseph was a, a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. Nicodemus, he came to Jesus, but at night, so nobody would be looking, nobody would find out about it. Suddenly they throw away all reservation and all timidity and boldly they go forth and identify with the crucified Christ and they give him public honor. That's quite something. It looks like they've been talking to each other because Joseph goes and makes the legal arrangements with Pilate and he goes and brings the linen and Nicodemus brings the spices. So there's obviously some planning that's going on here. They got to act quick because at sundown, the Sabbath is going to begin. They only have a few hours. And so there are huge amounts of myrrh and aloes, very sweet 
smelling spices, huge bags and bags and bags of it. I imagine that they would have had to have help because these would be big, heavy bags, and many of them. They probably would have had servants helping them. They bring them to prepare the body of our Lord. Now, myrrh and aloes, we read about that in the Old Testament. These were used in the burial of the ancient royal kings, the royal burials in the Old Testament included myrrh and aloes. And so this massive amount, this was not a small amount. This is not the amount you would have used for a regular person. This is an amount fit for a king. And it is saying, here lies Jesus, king of the Jews, king of kings, lord of lords. They prepare his body in the typical custom of the day and put him in a new tomb that's close by. We read in one of the other gospels that it actually belongs to Joseph himself. So Jesus doesn't even get his own tomb because he doesn't need his own tomb. He's just borrowing one for a while. It's going to be quite temporary, quite short, the time that he's in the tomb. And so this is the burial of our Lord. And it is no ordinary burial. For the first time in history, we witness the burial of a man who has no sin. He has no sin of his own. And all our sin, which was piled upon him, is all gone. It's all dealt with. It's all paid. So we have a sinless man. And he's put into the ground in death. And that's a problem. That's not a problem for Jesus. That's not a problem for us. That's a problem for death. Because death only can claim sinners. The wages of sin is death. And if you have sin that is not confessed, that is not paid for, that is not washed away, then death claims you and death can keep you. But Jesus has no sin. And so when we read Peter's Pentecost sermon, one of the wonderful things he says in that sermon on Pentecost Day is that Jesus just got up on resurrection morning because death could not hold him. Didn't stand a chance. Didn't have any right to keep him in the grave. So what's happening here? Look at this scene. There is a garden and there is a tree, a tree of death. He hung upon that tree. And we have Adam, the last Adam, and he is going into the ground, not coming out of it. He's going into the ground. What's happening? Well, what is happening here is that God is scrubbing back the video of history. For those who are older, he's rewinding the tape of history, the history of the human race, and bringing us right back to the beginning where things started in the garden with a tree and with an Adam. But it will be a new start with a new man. And right now, at the end of our text here in chapter 19, the last Adam is resting in the sleep of death. 
and from his side flowed blood and water. If you think about the first Adam, from his side was taken his bride. So from the side of Jesus flowed blood and water. And don't they make us think of the, the blood of the supper and the water of baptism, the sacraments by which the, in the power of his spirit, Jesus gathers, defends, and preserves for himself a church chosen to everlasting life, a holy bride. So as Adam gained his bride as he slept, so in the sleep of death, preparations are made for the coming to life of the bride of Christ. You know, in Psalm 45, if you look at Psalm 45, verse 8, it's talking about a royal wedding. And it's fascinating that myrrh and aloes were not just used for the funeral beds of the ancient kings, but also for the weddings. Look at Psalm 45, verse 8. The, the bridegroom is ready for the wedding. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. So there are preparations going on here for joy and for a royal wedding because the last Adam has done what the first Adam did not do. The last Adam has struggled with the serpent in the garden. He has fought and he has overcome and he has crushed the head of the serpent and he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and he has set me free from all the power of the devil and through death. He has destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He has vanquished. He has overcome. He has done it. It is finished. Think about that. All those years, all those millennia, all of that suffering, all of that pain, all of that agony, because of one bite of a piece of fruit. Brothers and sisters, don't fool with sin. It's a lot worse than we think it is. You know, we read the ancient stories and modern ones too. We often have that theme of the hero killing the dragon and marrying the princess. There's a reason for that. Because that's the real story of the universe. Christ has conquered. Christ now rests in the sleep of death. And on Sunday, he will rise up and begin the final stage of God's salvation plan by his word and spirit. He will gather his church, his bride, and he will prepare her for the coming marriage feast of the Lamb. That's what's about to happen. That's what we're waiting for. The entire universe holds its breath as we wait for things to move to the final stage. And so we're going to sing now the last stanza, hymn 25, and we're going to sing about the fruit of all of his suffering and pain. That many, many will be his possession. 
that those for whom he died would not just be a few, not just be a big number, but would be a multitude which no man can number. Brothers and sisters, this is your funeral. The old you has died, and now everything is ready for the new you to live. Amen.